theyeshiva.net. It is one of the most troubling and mysterious stories in the entire Chumash. And I'm referring, of course, to the moment in Parshas Chukas when Moshe Rabbeinu was denied permission to enter into the promised land something he was looking forward towards for so long and with such a profound yearning and longing for more than 40 years. And yet the circumstances or the sin that brought about this denial of permission to enter the land are completely ambiguous, nebulous. When one reads the story one is left scratching his or her head what exactly happened, what went wrong. Let me remind you the way the Torah describes the story in Parshas Chukas, Perik Chaf, Bamidba Perik Chaf, or Numbers chapter 20. Miriam has passed on, there was no water. The Jews are in the desert, they've been there for 40 years. This is already the final year. Soon, in just a few months, they're about to enter into the Holy Land. And they come to Moshe and Aaron. They're desperate for water. Why did you take us out of Egypt to die here in thirst? You can't plant. It's not a place of figs, of grapes, of pomegranates. There's no water to drink. If we would have only died with our brothers, we wouldn't die with all of us and our children and our animals of thir- with thir- uh, from thirst. Hashem tells Moshe, take the stick, the stick, and gather the entire congregation. You and Aaron together shall gather them. Speak to the rock. Speak to the rock before their eyes, Venosan Maimov, and it will produce, it will give its waters. Speak to the rock in front of them, and it, the rock, will give, will flow with its waters, Venosan Maimov, and you will extract water from the rock and irrigate all of the people and all of their livestock. Moshe takes the stick from Hashem as he commanded him. And the next scene, Moshe and Aaron gather the people to the rock, and they say, Listen, rebels, Will we extract water from this rock? Moshe then lifts his hand, strikes the rock with a stick twice, An abundant of water emerges from the rock, and the entire congregation, all of the people, and all of their animals have plenty of water to drink. When you read it, as far as you're concerned, you're like, wow, <laughs> that's another impressive biblical, biblical miracle. There was no water, and somehow from Iraq, Moshe, as an emissary of the Rebbeinu Shalom of Hashem, managed to extract water. It would seem like this story ends very positively. They were in panic, they were in hysteria. There's nothing like thirst. And as Rashi says, dying from thirst is vicious and painful. 
So they complained, they cried, they panicked. Hashem says, take your stick, speak to the rock. Moshe takes the stick, hits the rock, and the water comes out. But the next scene, the next verse, is really, we, we, we're shocked when you read it the first time, or you read it with a freshness. Hashem tells Moshe and Aaron, you didn't believe in me. You didn't believe in me. To sanctify me before the eyes of the children of Israel. You will not bring this community to the land that I have given them, that I have promised them. And the Torah concludes the entire story. These were the these are the waters of strife. Asheravu bnei Yisrael es Hashem, during which the Jews quarreled with God, by Yikadesh Bum, and He was sanctified through them, through the water. And that's the end of the story. The entire story occupies just a few psukim of Perik Chaf, thirteen verses, the death of Miriam, the complaining about the water, the miracle with the stick and the consequences of Moshe and Aaron not entering into the land. It is so difficult to understand what happened that all of the commentators debate this. And just from the fact that there is such a fierce debate about this, it teaches you, it shows you how unclear it is. Rashi maintains that the problem was Moshe struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. That's what Rashi says. Hashem told him, speak to the rock. Instead, he took the stick and he struck the rock. That's Rashi's interpretation. Which creates a whole new bunch of questions. Why did Hashem tell him, take the stick? <laughs> it says, it's like a setup. Take the stick and speak to the rock. Moshe takes the stick and hits the rock. What happened? Why tell him, take the stick? Number two, why would Moshe hit the rock instead of speak to the rock? What was the temptation in Moshe to violate what the God told him to speak to the rock? No, I'm going to hit the rock. How many of us are familiar with a Yitzhahara to hit rocks? Speak to the rock? No, I want to hit the rock. Why should you want to hit the rock? And Rashi's perturbed by this, and Rashi tells the whole story that he couldn't find that rock. He couldn't find the original. They used to have an original rock known as the Well of Miriam. It was the rolling stone that used to follow them throughout the 40 years in the wilderness, and Moshe couldn't find that rock. So he was speaking to the wrong rock. So he thought, oh, it's not working with speech. Let me try this alternative. And then it happened to be that he found the right rock, and he hit that rock, but it wasn't working because God wanted him to speak to the rock, so he hit it again. So it's almost like a, a, a fantastical setup. And the third question is, even if it was something wrong, Shem said, speak, he hit. That's why he's denied entry into the Holy Land. His dream, his purpose. This is where he was sent to Egypt to take the Jews out in order to bring them to this land. And it took 40 years and 40 difficult years. They were supposed to go in right away, but there was, of course, the story with the Chateigel and the story of the spies. And as a result of the spies, they stayed there 40 years. And Moshe nurtured them and protected them and led them. And here already he's at the feet of the promised land. And he will not enter. Why? Why? Because he hit the rock.
And thus, many of the Mepharshim disagree. The Rambam, for example, Maimonides, he has a famous uh, little booklet known as Shmoina Prokim, the eight essays, the eight chapters of the Rambam, an introduction to Perkeyavas. And the Rambam in his Shmoina Prokim says that the issue was completely different. Shimunaham Moirim, Moshe called the Jews rebels. In other words, he was angry at them. He was furious with them. He called them Shimona Amorim. Listen, rebels, can we take water out of the rock? And Rambam says that Jews assumed that if Moshe is angry with them, it must be God is angry with them. And it wasn't true. That's the Rambam's interpretation. And the Ramban's interpretation is completely different. The Ramban fiercely rejects Rashi and rejects the Rambam. And he says the problem was that Moshe and Aaron said, we will take out water from this rock. They attributed it to them. And Rabbi Yosef Olbo and Sefer Yechim says the exact opposite. He says the problem was that they didn't have to run to God. Moshe and Aaron should have known that God runs the world and if the Jewish people need water, there'll be water, and they could have done it on their own. One of the commentators summarizes the entire debate. He says, poor Moshe Rabbeinu. According to all interpretations, he did one sin. But when you read all the Mepharshim, there are at least 13 sins he did. So from one sin, it became 13, because everybody has a different interpretation. And the reason everybody has a different interpretation is because it's completely unclear what the man did. So this commentator, I remember I once saw, he says, poor Moshe, from one sin, one sin turned into 13 sins, because every commentator has his own sin that he imposes upon Moshe Rabbeinu. So Moshe did one thing, and it turned into 13 crimes. But it only underscores the point of how nebulous, of how unclear this entire story is. I'm mentioning a few. You look in the Arachayim, there's a whole different interpretation. You look in the Sepharno, there's a whole different interpretation. You look in the Klayakar, there's three different interpretations. It's not an exaggeration to say, and I really mean that it's not an exaggeration to say, that if one studies all of the commentaries on Chumash throughout the last few thousand years, and there are many, one will find more than a hundred different explanations of this story. A hundred different mistakes or sins, quote-unquote, that Moshe and Aaron did, and the relationship between what they did and the consequence of them not entering into the promised land. Which Who's right? Who's correct? Now, there are many layers, as we always talk about, there's many layers of Torah interpretation, but this itself only underscores as I've been saying, the profound uh, lack of clarity that the Torah obviously explicitly keeps the story very brief, concise, mysterious, and unclear as to understand what Moshe and Aaron did. I'm going to address one explanation today, Be'ezer Hashem. I don't know if it answers all the questions, but it's one of the perspectives. It's based on another, it begins with yet another question. 
And the other question is, a similar story happened once. Forty years earlier, when the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, they left Egypt, shortly after, in Parshas B'Shalach, they come to a place called Rifidim. This is in Exodus 17, Parshas B'Shalach, Perik in Zion. There was no water. This happened shortly after the exodus of Egypt, approximately one month after, and they're traveling. They come to Moshe. They say, we need water. They tell him, why did you take us out of Egypt to allow us all to die from thirst? Moshe screams to Hashem, and he says there a line, he says, another few minutes they're going to stone me. I'm their leader. They're left without water. Hashem tells Moshe, take a few of the elders of the Jewish people and again take your stick. The stick with which you struck the river in Egypt. Take the stick. There's going to be a tzur, a rock. I will be standing there. You should strike the rock and water will come out and the entire nation will drink. And Moshe does this before the elders of Israel and the Jewish people are irrigated. Their thirst is quenched. Men, the women, the children, and Lahavdil, all of their animals, their domesticated livestock, whatever they had, and they had many who all, of course, survive only through water. And of course, there, one notices that Hashem told them, strike the rock, which can only help us understand why Moshe in the next story, 40 years later, once again strikes the rock. Hashem again told him in the second story, take your stick, as we said. Hashem said, Then Hashem said, speak to the rock. But Moshe actually takes the stick, and he strikes the rock twice, and a lot of water comes out. So the first time he said, take the stick and strike the rock. Now he says, take the stick and speak to the rock. But Moshe, perhaps, instinctively, remembers the first story and he strikes the rock again. What indeed was the difference? Which brings us to another question. And that is, if this was such a sin, how did it work so effectively? Moshe strikes the rock, and what happens? And an abundance of water comes out. If this was the wrong thing... If this was not what Hashem wanted, if it was a violation of God's commandment, and He says, you didn't believe in me, you didn't sanctify me, how was it so successful? How did He manage to get so much water out of the rock the second time when He did the wrong thing? Of course, there's always the details that shed light on the truth. The name of the rock in the first story, the name of the rock in the second story varies. In Parshas B'Shalach, the rock is called Sur. In Parshas Chukas, the rock is called Sela. Now in English, it's a rock and a rock, or a stone and a stone. But in Lush and Kodesh, in Hebrew, whenever there are two names for something, they're usually not just two identical names for the same object. They represent nuanced distinctions. And hence, Sur and Sela are not really addressing the same thing. There's a difference between Sur and Sela. In order to appreciate all of this, let me focus yet on one more nuance. When the Rebbeinu Shalom tells Moshe Rabbeinu, take your stick, speak to the rock, 
he says, Venosan may mov. It will produce its waters. The rock, the sela, by speaking to it, will give forth, Venosan, it will give forth, may mov. Its waters. Zaina vasarin, if you want in Yiddish. May mov. Its own waters. And you will extract water and give everybody to drink. When the story actually happens, Moshe picks up his hand, strikes the rock twice, and then the verse says, Vayetsu mayim rabim. A lot of water comes out. It doesn't say, Vayetsu may mov. Its water comes out. A lot of water comes out of the rock. Now you might say, okay, what's the difference? But it's curious that Hashem doesn't say, speak to the rock, and it will give water. I will, will give its water. When Moshe strikes, when he strikes the rock, it doesn't say it gave its water. A lot of water came out. There's a medrash, Yalkut Shemoini, on this story, Parshas Chukas, which is also quoted by the Klayakar. And the medrash says something else that's very curious. The medrash says, Vidibartem el hasela, speak to the rock. Shana shnei alav perik echot. Learn by the rock one chapter of Torah. Speak to the rock doesn't only mean speak to the rock, it means you should learn one chapter. That's what the Medrash says, which is very strange. What type of learning are the space to do by the rock? Learn one chapter. And then the Medrash continues and says that there is a difference between the first story and the second story, like the difference between a young child and a grown-up child. There's a time for spanking, the Medrash says, and there's a time for speaking. And you're wondering, what does it have to do with children? We're talking about a rock producing water. But the Medrash doesn't explain. So I'm going to share today with you, Bezer Hashem, one perspective on this that's based on a brief commentary of the Kleyakar, but in a much more elaborate and uh, mystical and spiritual and psychological way in the writings of the Tzemach Tzedek, which, is the nucle- which constitutes the nucleus and the primary ideas I'm going to share today, the way I understood it. What is the difference between Tzur and Tzela? The Malbim already points this out in his commentary on Chumash, and he, of course, has a whole different interpretation of the story. Just as the early Rishonim argue, the Achroinim argue, the Nitziv has a completely different interpretation, the Meshachachim, a different interpretation. Everybody goes to town with this story in their own way. Just to, uh, to study all of them and see the diversity of perspectives is pretty astounding and powerful. In Hebrew, what's the difference between Tzur and Selah? Tzur is a rock that is rocky in the exterior, on the exterior and in the interior. Meaning the entire rock is filled with rock. On the outside, of course, but also on the inside. 
It's rock through and through and through. Sela is different. Sela is a rock on the outside, but it often contains moisture or even water. As the Malbim puts it, sometimes you'll have mountains that are rocky. The, 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 the terrain is a rocky terrain. It's a mountainous, rocky terrain. But it absorbed enormous amounts of water from rains that have fallen over many, many years. And it often contains that water on the inside. And that's the difference between Tzur and Selah. Tzur is therefore always associated with something very fierce and strong, very powerful. We even call Hashem, ain't Tzur, keinu. Chana sings. Ain't sur There's no rock. It's, in Yiddish they call it felsenstark. Extremely powerful and solid. We say in davening, Tzur Yisrael v'goyaloi. The rock of Israel. The rock of the Jewish people and its Redeemer. Tzur Yisrael. Kuma be'ezra Yisrael. Many of the Nuschoyes say right before, right before Shemayin Asra. It's the rock you can hold on to. It will support you because it's a powerful rock. Through and through, it's a rock. It will never disappoint. Cell, on the other hand, on the inside, could be soft. It could be moist. It can even contain literally liquid. According to this, one can understand very clearly why in the second story, Hashem says, speak to the rock, v'nosan mov. I wanted to give its water. I wanted to release the water that's coming from within inside of itself. It has water. It's not just a new thing that's being created, yesh and something from nothing. We are getting water from a rock. I'm going to take water out of a phone, out of an MP3, out of a book. We are taking water out of a rock. No, v'nosan meimov, I wanted to release its water. In fact, you'll see this even in Lashon Kodesh, in the Hebrew holy tongue, every word is extremely precise. You'll see it even in the word selah. Now bear with me. The word selah consists of three letters, right? Samach, Lamed, and Ayin. Now every letter in the Hebrew alphabet, every word in the Hebrew, every letter in the Hebrew alphabet is the way you write it and is the way you say it. When I write out a Samach, I just write Samach. Or if I'm doing the Hebrew English alphabet, I'll do an S. Samach. But if I have to actually say Samach, I don't say Sa, I say Samach. And if I would write it out fully, it would be three letters. Samach, right? Samach, Mem, Chaf, Samach. This is known as the letter itself and the milui, the filling. Aleph, we just make an Aleph or an A. But really what I just said was, I didn't say A, I said Aleph, which is three letters. Aleph, Lamet, Fe. Bez is Bez, Bez Yudsaf. Let's do this to the word Selah. Let's take each of the three letters and expand. Take each letter individually and see it fully. So if you'll take a Samach, Samach Lamed Ayin. So Samach is spelled Samach Mem Chaf, right? Let's take Lamed. 
Lamid is spelled Lamid, Mem, Dalid, Lamid. Ayin is spelled Ayin, Ayin, like Ayin, the I, right? Ayin, 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 Yud, Langanon. Now let's take the middle letter of all those three. So Samach, Sela, the, what's the center, the middle letter of Samach? Mem. What's the middle letter of Ayin? Yud. And what's the middle letter of Lamed? The middle letter of Lamed. Mem. What does that make up? Mayim. So when you have the word Sela, on the outside it's a rock. But on the inside, both physically and linguistically, it's really full of water. That's the idea of the Sela. So the Sela on the outside, it means a rock. It doesn't mean water. Mayim is water. Sela is not water. Sela is a rock. A rock you can't drink from. But that's only on the outside. But if you could excavate it, so to speak, if you could penetrate it also linguistically, meaning if you're going to get to the pnimius, to the core, to the toichius, to the inevenikstechelik, to the inside of Sela, what are you going to find? You're going to find a different word. Mem, yud mem. Because the Hebrew language is not just a language that was created for utilitarian purposes. In other words, most the function of language is usually to allow us to communicate with each other. Animals have their own language. Birds have their own language. You could listen to it at dawn break every morning. They have long and intense and elaborate conversations. And humans have their languages for which we created languages, each nation, according to its According to its, uh, each nation creates its own language and vocabulary, but Lashon Kodesh is not only a language for practical purposes so we should be able to communicate. Lashon Kodesh also is considered the language with which the universe was created, meaning every name of something captures its physical and spiritual properties. So the word Sela is not surprising that inside you have Mayim, because that actually tells you what type of Sela, what type of rock we're talking about. It's hard terrain, it's rocky terrain on the outside, and soft water-like or liquid on the inside. Where Tzur is a completely different nature. Tzur is the rock on the outside and on the inside. Which is why in the first story, Hashem says, take your stick, Water will come out. It doesn't say the tzur will produce its water. It's not going to produce its water. Water will come out by you striking the rock. I will make sure that water comes out. By the selah, the vocabulary changed. Its water is going to come out. The water that's contained in the selah by you speaking to it. Another difference is by this rock he said, the first time he said, hit it, water will leave it, water will come out. By the cell he says, speak to the rock, it will give its water. Not water will come out, it will give its water. The word nasan instead of viyatsu. So there's two differences. And yet when Moshe strikes the rock, the language goes back to the language of the tzur. Vayetsu mayim. And water came out of it. It's almost a replay of the first of the first story. Now, what was the distinction between Sur and Sela? What do, what do these two things represent? We have a physical distinction, but let's now go from this physical 
to the metaphysical, to the spiritual, or the emotional, or the psychological, because every story in Chumash operates on many different levels, and they mirror each other. They reflect each other. When the Jewish people needed water 40 years ago, they were in a very different place than when they needed water today. First of all, it was a new generation. The generation that pleaded for water 40 years ago, the adults of that generation, meaning whoever was above 20 at that time, at this point, has passed on. During the 40 years, they have passed on. Who was around? Was around children who were born during the 40 years. So they may have now been 39 years old, 38 years old, 35 years old, but they were young or not even born when they left Egypt, or they were babies at the time, or they were teenagers at the time, or young adults, but they were still not running the show. They were not the parents and the leaders of the people. They were very young. Either they were born or they weren't born. Of course, you had also all of the women, because they never passed on in the desert. The decree for the generation to pass on in the desert was only on the men, not on the women. So when they came into Eretz Yisrael, all the women who left Egypt, unless those who died from natural causes, entered into the land of Israel, which is the origin of the Shidduch crisis. <laughs> there was a tremendous disproportionate situation going on in the Midway. You like my theory? Not such a bad theory. Huh? That's true. That's why. That's why. <laughs> You want me to take a break now? You want to discuss this for a few minutes? <laughs> the generation that left Egypt were slaves. They were beaten. They underwent savage suffering. They were tortured on a daily basis with the whips of the Egyptian taskmasters, commanders, and troops who beat them. This was on a physical level. On an emotional level, of course, their rights were taken from them. They were slaves. On the most gruesome and barbaric level, their children were snatched from them and killed, drowned. Paroi had this in mind. Havan is chakmaloi pen yirbe. This was the first strategic plan of genocide against the country. He first tried with, the, with Shifra and Pua not to allow the boys even to come into the world, but to kill them right during birth. That didn't work, and he devised other plans, but he really wanted to completely shrink the nation and ultimately allow it to perish in a strategic way. The last era in Egypt was a glorious one. The slaves saw how the greatest empire of the time was brought to its knees. And Parai himself is begging Moshe and Aaron, Kumu, Ami, leave, leave my nation. Out of his fear and dread after the ten plagues, particularly the tenth plague, Marcus Pcheris. But everybody can understand the trauma and the pain and the anguish that these people lived with for a very long time. They have been in Egypt for 210 years, not for five years. Now, much of the time, they weren't slaves. Their first era in Egypt was a very prosperous era. Their brother, Yosef, his son, Yosef, or brother, Yosef, was the prime minister of the land, and he fed them and he nurtured them. 
But as time went on, the noose around their neck tightened. And during the last 86 years, 86 Pavov, they experienced from the birth of Miriam, who was named Miriam because one of the reasons it comes from the word mar, bitter. The last 86 years, Miriam was six years older than Moshe. Moshe was 80 when they left Egypt. Miriam was thus 86 when they left Egypt. She was quite an elderly matriarch at the time. Miriam was named this because the last 86 years were years of slave labor and a complete deprivation of dignity and of human rights. So even when they left Egypt, this was not an easy transformation. I don't have to describe to the crowd sitting here what were the emotional effects of the generation that went through Stalin and went through Hitler. Even if only a few months as the survivors of Hungary or a few years as the survivors of other regions of Eastern Europe, Russia, Poland, Galicia, and other countries in Eastern Europe. It's transformative. A person's life has completely changed. So the Jewish people were this people. They were transported from the abyss to the heavens. It's hard for us to understand what happened, that within seven weeks, they suddenly can experience God like no other generation experienced it. But that wasn't simple, because it wasn't gradual. They weren't in recovery for 25 years. It was a snap with the finger, which is why they kept on saying, let's go back. Because you could take Egypt, you can take the Jew out of Egypt. You can't always take Gullus or Egypt out of the Jew. I can schlep you out of a place and bring you to a new place. But does that place not accompany you? And we see it constantly in all aspects of life. A person could be taken from one place and put into a new place, but they carry the memories and therefore the experience and therefore even if geographically they have left, emotionally, we often have a very hard time leaving the past. And in that state when there's no water, Moshe says in a few minutes they're going to stone me. He won't say this 40 years later. Oid ma'atus koluni. Moshe wasn't trying to be dramatic with God, to get God, hey, 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 I'm going to be stoned. Moshe was describing a genuine emotion he was having. In another few minutes, they're going to stone me. And he screams, what do you want me to do with this people? You took us into the desert. There's no water. And it's hard for us, I mean, thank God, it's hard for most of us to understand what does it mean to live for days without water. And not only for yourself, yourself, children, babies. What does it look like? A person can understand a little bit, at least imagine what type of hysteria, what type of panic for mothers, for fathers, for themselves, and more importantly for their loved ones. And watching that state is extremely difficult. They lose it. And you're dealing not with ten people. You're dealing with two, three, four million people. That's a lot of people (laughs) To give to find water. Moshe says, they're going to stone me. Hashem says, take the stick. Go to the tzur. I want you to strike the rock. And what's going to happen? Water will come out. Forty years later, you're dealing with a completely different situation. What is the difference 
between the first the people in the first story and the people in the second story. When they come out of Egypt, they're newly released slaves. What does a slave live by? How do you discipline a slave? How do you get a slave to do things? Those who are familiar with the sad era of slavery in the United States of America, was lachte. It was a sad era of slavery in the United States of America. Know how slaves were treated brutally. Never mind slaves in Egypt, in the ancient world, but even in the modern world. The slave is the person who doesn't, who the master doesn't recognize as an independent human being. The slave is subjected to my control to my authority, to my dominion. And if he doesn't listen, the whip comes out. Even when the whip doesn't come out, the relationship is a whip-like relationship. It's not about what you like, what you don't like, what you think, what you don't think. A slave tells the master, I have a different opinion. As they would say in Yiddish, Who asked you? Since when do you have opinions? And even if you do have opinions, those opinions you keep to yourself because the master completely has no place for them. The MO, the modus operandi of the relation between the master and slave is one by definition of force, of coercion. The Gemara has a famous expression in Gitin, page 10, The slave on its own would like to live a frivolous life. Slave is not given the dignity of deciding where he should go, where she should go. The slave is the person on their own. They become very frivolous because all of their discipline is simply a matter of coercion, of force. So how do you discipline a slave? You discipline a slave by whipping the slave, by striking the slave. Striking physically or even striking verbally. There's two types of striking. There's striking with a whip, with a belt, with a stick, which was often done. Some of you experienced that too. Some of us experience that too. And they're striking with words, but also striking. If I scream at somebody, I terrorize them verbally. I may have not used a physical belt, but I used a verbal belt. And I don't have to explain anybody sitting in this audience that a verbal whip is sometimes as powerful as a physical whip. What was that song? Uh, uh, sticks and... Uh, Yes. In Yiddish, there's an expression, a patch fargate una avort bashtet. A smack passes. Not always. <laughs> but at least some parts of it. A word you tell somebody sometimes sits in them for the rest of their life. A patch fargate. Avort bashtet. So when we talk about striking the slave, yes, there's the physical component, but the physical component is just an expression of a certain attitude. There's no room for your identity. You are my slave. You are under my dominion, my authority. And when somebody is living in that world, when somebody is living in the world of slavery, that's the way you discipline them. That's the way you run the show. Whenever there is a very, very tight situation of authority, there can't be always room 
for his or her individual expression, that's the definition of a slave. On his own, he's going to run away. He doesn't even want to be here. The slave didn't choose to be here. The slave was forced. He was sold into slavery. Or in the case of Egypt, they were thrown into slavery. They didn't choose it. They didn't ask for it. They were deceived. Parry was very wise. The Medrash describes how he did it. So the whole nature of the relationship is coercion. The relationship was created through coercion. And hence, it's sustained through coercion. If it wouldn't be sustained through coercion, it would completely crumble because the first moment you allow me to leave, I leave. I run. I want to run. An interesting interpretation, I think it's of the Avanezer and Parshish Mishpatim, there's a mitzvah. Torah says that if somebody knocks out the tooth of their slave, he goes free. And one of the reasons that's given is that in the ancient days, masters used to knock out a tooth or afflict another wound that cannot be, uh, fi- it's, not, it's not fixable. It remains. Why? Because slaves often ran away. So they made this type of sign on their body that wherever they run, you could run but not hide, and people will see that they're slaves. So what does the Torah say? The Torah says if you do this to your slave... They actually go free. You lose them. Because this was a type of, uh, of, of humiliation that don't think you'll ever run away because wherever you are in the world, they'll see you're missing a tooth. So the Torah says if you treat your slave this way, actually he or she will never be a slave again. He will go out. It's known. He goes out as a result of the, of the missing, missing tooth or eye. Any type of physical wound he will go free for good. That's the consequence. But the very fact that there's such a mitzvah demonstrates to you the mindset and the privileges, quote-unquote, that slaves had. So it's a psychological situation. When the Jewish people came out of Egypt, even though they were free, and the point of, of Jewish life was for them to be free, but internally, there was the attitude of slavery. And internally, when there's this attitude of slavery, the language that the slave understands is the language of coercion. Because the internal language, he never managed to cultivate. He never learned the language of freedom. Freedom is a language. Freedom is a vocabulary. Freedom has its own alphabet. Freedom has its own mindset. Happiness has its own mindset. Emancipation has its own mindset. Independence has its own mindset. You have to learn it. You have to cultivate it. When Israel brought the Jews of Ethiopia to the Holy Land in 1991, Mifza Shloimer it's called, an incredible feat. Thousands and thousands of Ethiopian Jews were saved and brought to the Holy Land. So they were given toothbrushes on the airplane. So what they do, they cleaned off their shoes with the toothbrushes. You have, to know, learn, you have to learn about these things physically and also emotionally. Sometimes he simply doesn't understand another language. You decide tomorrow that you're going to communicate. You're going to communicate with your horse by giving him a shear. You're going to communicate with your cat or your dog by allowing him to watch a video of me talking. I'm very flattered. But I'm not sure he's going to understand it. You have to communicate 
with an animal the way an animal can appreciate the message. And sometimes that means knowing what will influence the animal. The same is true the animal and a person. There's an animal in me too. We each have a nefesh of Hamas. We each have an animal. So how do you communicate with the animal? Somebody once in Shul was a chassid by a shamnu. He's doing it very hard. Yom Kippur. al He was like really pounding his chest. So somebody said, Was has I stark? He says, but my nefesh Bahamas evet machmenen asaglet. I have a type of animal that if I don't do it very hard, he thinks I'm caressing him. <laughs> I'm trying to hug him and embrace him. You got to know your animal. If somebody has an animal that is ferocious, undomesticated, a real addict, a monster, you're going to start making a zoya shamanu bagan. He says, thank you for the compliment. You got to beat him into shape. Beating him in the shape is not because you're cruel. It's because there's no other language that he understands. He's not interested in this whole thing. He doesn't even know what you're talking about. He was never cultivated. He never grew up. In the early stages of Jewish history, when they just came out of a vicious slavery, the mentality of the Jewish people was one of slaves. Water is physical water, and water is also spiritual water. The Gemara says in Babakama, water represents wisdom, enlightenment, inspiration, just as water, fresh water, quenches our thirst and gives us life, and most of our body is made up of water, and when a fetus develops in the mother's womb in the amniotic sac, it grows in a mikvah of water. Water always represents the staple of life, physically, but also spiritually, in the famous metaphor of Rabbi Akiva about Torah and the Jewish people, like a fish in water. And when the fish is taken out of water, it can't survive in the physical metaphor. And hence, when the Jewish people are thirsty for water, the Rebbeinu Shalom God tells Moshe, when you're dealing with a rock that is all rocky, how are you going to get water? How are you going to get water? You have to strike the rock, which represents coercion of the rock. You force the rock and water will come out. By hook or by crook, water will come out. Now, of course, in that case, it was a miracle because it was a rock. But what it represents on a spiritual level is that there is the language that the animal understands. And the language that the animal understands is a frask, a patch. People often ask, is it right to to slap children, to smack children? It used to be, no one asked this question. I know of, uh, I don't know, I don't think a few decades ago, mothers or fathers sat at a shear and said, are you allowed to hit your child? They were hit, and they hit their children. I'm not a very old man, but when I was in school, almost every teacher slapped, slapped the children, and some of them did it with a special, special hidur mitzvah. And this was natural. And most of the kids were afraid to tell their parents because you would tell your father you got slapped. He slapped you. So it didn't even pay to talk about it. But this didn't come from monsters, from bad people. It was like this for generations. What was the mindset? The mindset is he's a little ratty, bratty. (laughs) He's a little rowdy and bratty kid. There's only one language. You're going to start saying... 
please sit down, please go to sleep, please don't make a mess, please don't throw the cheesecake on your sister's face, please don't put the ice cream on the couch, please, 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 and nothing will happen. Three o'clock in the morning, your house will still be a jungle, and the school will be a jungle. So the thinking went, the child needs to hear the language that he or she can understand, and that was often called a frask. Again, whether it's physical or verbal, but it's the same concept. You scream, you force, this is the way it is, you like it not, if not, I take you and I do it. Now, I'm not now discussing the question, is this room today for a smack or not? That's not the discussion I want to say. But everybody understands, whatever your view is and your thing, everybody understands that if it's done from impulsive anger, it's always, always wrong. Because it's not chinuch. It's about an outlet for your lack of feeling control in your life. And your child should not be the victim of your lack of control. You know, that even those who agree that there's room once in a while for a frask, for a patch, or a spanking, only if it's done with deliberation, reflection, and a feeling of love that this is the best thing for this child to become the person he or she is capable of becoming. Which means, before you smack, sit down, meditate, go on a hike, three, four hours on bare mountains, reflect on the situation, and then come home. <laughs> Once told a mother, she was very into smacking, I said, make a list when you're relaxed, what sins your child has to do to deserve a smack. But this list has to be done at night when all the kids are sleeping and you're rested. Make a list. If they pour the orange juice on the floor, what's the sin that your child needs to do in order to give a smack? She couldn't come up with one thing on the list. But let's say you'll come up with a few things on the list. But it has to come from a place of sensitivity, empathy, understanding, appreciation. I'm doing this for the, what I really believe is the benefit of the child. If I'm just angry and I'm frustrated and I don't know how to handle it and therefore I just smack you up without discrimination, without understanding what the child is going through, I think everybody understands that could be extremely destructive and it's an error. But whether the decision is this way or this way, still, your two-year-old will not always be persuaded by a beautiful lecture. I know some mothers try to do that. They come home from a six-week workshop on parenting that you paid $900 for. You sat in the front row, right? You took notes. You went over to the speaker afterwards for an hour and made sure to clarify everything. You come home with nine notebooks, right? And then you try to put it into action. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and your son looks at you and says, it's not my problem that you went for a course, you know. I have to enjoy life. I'm not part of your, you know, I'm not one of your cronies. So you try to put it into action, and you start giving eloquent and beautiful, empowering lectures to your four-year-old about the beauty of getting enough sleep because the brain needs oxygen. And how all aggression needs healthy and productive outlets. But you know what? Even adults don't listen to lectures present company excluded 
Five-year-olds sometimes listen more than adults to lectures. But sometimes I have to pick up my boy and say, my dear Malacho, we're going to bed. No, we're not going to bed. Yes, we're going to bed. So will somebody say, how could you be such a cruel father and coerce him when he's crying? And any healthy person will say that's not cruelty because if this child doesn't get sleep, they will not be able to function that day. So when we talk about a whip, I don't necessarily mean the belt, the whip, the ancient whip, even though that was the, <laughs> every classroom, <laughs> they used to, the malamdim used to hang up a kanchik, a whip on the wall. <laughs> I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, he said, he was born in the Ukraine in the traditional cheder system. In 1902 he was born. Then there was no, no shiurim about not hitting, hitting your children. So he said when he was in cheder, the malama, the teacher, had a kanchik, had a, had a whip on the wall. And then he said in Yiddish, If he was inept... If he was inept as a teacher, he used it. <laughs> and if he was apt, it stayed on the wall. So, when the person doesn't understand the language of who you're talking to, you're not going to be able to have influence. So at this stage of Jewish history, it says, You're dealing with a rock. And a rock feels no pain. <laughs> or at least, I should change it here because this rock does feel pain. But the rock is not sensitive to enlightenment because it's a rock. You have to take the rock and tell the rock, time to give water. This is what happens in the beginning. What happens 40 years later? People are still thirsting for water. That's what people do. We thirst for water. Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, take a stick, but don't use it. Now you have to speak to the rock. Because it has to give its own water. You're dealing with a whole new generation of Jews. Inside there's water. When there's water inside, the worst thing you can do is strike the rock. The worst thing you can do is force the rock to give water. Because then the rock will not be giving its own water. At best, the rock will either shut down or give other water. Your challenge now is, Persuade the rock. Teach the rock. Communicate to the rock. It's not only a question physically hitting or speaking. As I said before, there could be a verbal whip as well. It's a whole different MO. The slave who's not interested in being here, the baby who you can't persuade with words, he or she is not an adult, I sometimes have to force you to do it. Not because I'm cruel, for your benefit. A home that doesn't believe in any gvur and any discipline is not a healthy home. You can't have a home without a measure of discipline, of rules, of boundaries. It's not safe for children. Children who grew up, grow up in a home or a school where there's no boundaries, where they could never do anything wrong, are children who grow up in an environment that's not safe. 
because they don't know what's right, what's wrong, what's dangerous, what's not dangerous. Sometimes people think that when you give children uninhibited freedom to decide their own life, you're doing them a favor. You're not doing them a favor. You're doing them an injustice. In fact, there's research in, in psycholo- that psychologists have done, therapists have done, that have proven that similar to the trauma of children who grow up in homes that are oppressive, where they don't have any freedom, there's another type of trauma of children who grow up in homes where everything is freedom, meaning nobody tells them anything. There's no expectations. There's no communication. This is right. This is wrong. This you could do. This you cannot do. This is eating time. This is bedtime. This is right behavior. This is wrong behavior. The parents are sometimes out for lunch. And in the name of love and affection, they allow children to grow up in a world where they literally don't know what is right, what is left, where I'm going, where I'm not going. There's no solid foundation because there's no safety. So just like a love without a home without chesed, a home without love and affection and fun and excitement and joy is a very, very difficult home to grow up in. In fact, probably 75% of communication between parents and children should be positive, empowering, and loving communication. But 25% of communication needs to be communication of discipline, of boundaries. Chesed and Gvura together are two sacred emotions. Not when the Gvura is coming from anger and impulsiveness and impetuous frustration, but when it's coming from a place of caring and attachment and wisdom and perspective, not feeding my own insecurities or frustration. That's what whipping is about. That's what striking the rock is about. In order that the child should have water, you want him or her not to chas v'shalom die from thirst, physically or emotionally, not getting the flowing water that they need in order to live as people. Ein mayim ela tayr. Forty years later, imagine you're speaking to the, your 30-year-old son. Right? You're speaking to your 30-year-old son. Or your 30 year old daughter, right? And mommy always has an opinion. Is that true? Often, no? Sometimes you say it, sometimes you don't say it. But most mommies and bobbies always have opinions. Certainly if it's your son in law or daughter in law who's making the decision. So you look at your 30 year old son and you say, listen, if you're coming for Shabbos, is good. And if not, if not, <laughs> I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to bring you to my house. Everybody knows it's funny, right? It's not going to work. Not only it's not going to work because he's probably bigger than you. That's a technical problem. <laughs> but even if you can get over that, it's completely not understanding the nature of the relationship. The nature of the relationship is one where you're not two years old, for good or for bad. I wish he was two years old, and I could just tell him what to do. But at this point, I must work with the individuality of the person. I could still influence people deeply. Parents can always influence their children, even when their 60-year-olds are babies. They always remain your babies. But the influence is of a completely different type. I speak to you. I don't hit you. I don't mean hit you physically. Even the whip got to go out. You're not going to influence your children by making them feel guilty, which is a very famous method of parents influencing children. Okay, let me slave away for you and be your martyr. Bye, good Shabbos. 
and you hope that your daughter now lives with guilt for the next week. And when she has harata and calls you back and says, okay, 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 okay. That's just a whip. We're using a whip. And there comes a point in life where I have to be able to respect the fact that you are not me. And you're not in that age where I'm responsible for your bedtime or what you're eating or what you're not eating. Maybe with your husband, maybe if he's still a baby, it can work. I have to respect your otherness and speak to you. Speak to you means I respect your individuality, I respect your judgment, and I therefore have a conversation with you. Do we ever grow up? (laughs) Parts of us grow up, parts of us don't grow up. The parts of us that don't grow up, we have to whip. If there's a part of me that sometimes wants to eat something, I can't give myself lectures. I can't tell myself, go listen to Rabbi YY's lecture about your voids and dealing with them. The cake is more powerful than all the voids. Sometimes you need a whip with yourself. Again, you have to know your animal. You have to know what your animal looks like. Take your horse to a symphony. In order to inspire it, in the middle of the symphony, the horse is going to give a, uh, a grunt. This is not the language that speaks to it. A horse needs a different language. On the other hand, when you know the language of the horse, you can achieve tremendous great things with the horse. But one of them is not sitting with him at a symphony, unless you're the Meshuggah Caliglia who appointed a horse to be on this Senate of Rome. But that was Caliglia Tzidrete Nachop. You have Caliglias. You're familiar with Roman history a little bit. Forty years later, the Jewish people were completely in a different place. Hashem was telling Moshe, You're dealing with a cellar, not with a tzur. There is a lot of water inside. You can't force the cellar to give water because you need it to give its water. You need it to come from within. How can I force you and get something from inside of you? The only way I can get something from inside of you is if you share it. By definition, that which is forced never is internal. If I force you to do something, it didn't come from you. It came from me, from my power. If there's a tzur, I have no choice because through striking, I ultimately want to educate the person. And discipline becomes a means for education. But discipline is never an end in and of itself. People who think that chinuch equals discipline don't understand what chinuch is. Discipline is always a means for an end. An important means. But a means, not an end. Chinuch is not, I managed to force my kids for 20 years to go to shul every Shabbos and be good Jews. You never educated them. And where are you going to see it? The moment they're independent... They'll often remove the shackles and never look back again. Because if my entire method of persuasion was not persuasion, but coercion, I never managed to let you listen to your own waters, to let you know your own water. You don't even know your energy. You don't even know who you are. I never recognized you. I was just more powerful and I forced you. And I turned discipline into an end, into the goal, into the objective. Then I lose touch because when the person really becomes independent, they often completely 
abandon it. They leave go, but they don't even want to touch it because all it brings up for them is a negation of self. Where real discipline is a means to help the person ultimately cultivate their own waters, cultivate their own inspiration, find out who they are, discover their own soul, discover their own values, discover what means much, what means a lot to them, discover their true God-given potentials, discover what is their indispensable contribution to the universe, discover their infinite value in God's world as God's ambassadors. Yes, I can't always lecture to a three and four years old about his or her indispensable value in the cosmic symphony, which requires a brain to grow through 11 hours of sleep. I have to take you and put you to bed. I'll read you a story, but then leave the room. But the goal is not to always schlep you and put you in bed, pull you by your ear, and always ask you, did you follow my commands? And the only reason you'll say yes is out of fear of the alternative. Because then I have lost the person. So the journey of the Jewish people through the desert is the journey of every person. It's the journey of every child. It's the journey from a place of Tzur to a place of Selah. Which is why you will see that throughout the whole Tanakh, Tzur is associated with the name of Elikim, and Selah always with the name of Yutkei Vavkei. Wherever Selah is in the Tanakh, it's with Yutke Vavke. Tzur is with Elohim. That's not a coincidence. Samach Tzedek says the difference of Elohim and Yutke Vavke is Elohim is Midas Hadin. It's the attribute of strictness, of sternness, of judgment. It's also Midas Hatzimtzum. Elohim is 86. It's the 86 years that the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt. Peivav. Aleph, Lamed, Hey, Yud, Mem is 86. You with me? Aleph, Lamed, Hey, Yud, Mem. You'll make the calculations. You can trust me. Is 86. It's the same numerology as the word Hateva. Hey, Tez, Vez, Ayin is the nature. The nature eclipses. Nature is a tsur. It's a rock. It eclipses water. You look at nature, you don't see the divine flow of inspiration. I have to strike the tzur because I'm subjected to the concealment, to the tzimtzum, to the cover-up of nature, which is the cover-up created by God's concealment known as tzimtzum, which is what Shem Elohim is. Selah is associated with Yudkei Vavkei. Haya Yiyeh, he was, he is, and will be, which transcends time and space. In other words, there is revelation there of the divine infinite presence in every reality. So there's no concealment. There's much less concealment. One of the ways how Hebrew words work, numerology works is, is uh, let's take Yudke Vavke. So you have 10 and 5 and 6 and 5. But there's also, you multiply each letter together with the next letter. So, for example, yud ke you'll do Yud times hey, 10 times 5, which is going to be 50. Then you come to the second letter, hey, and you go the other way. So you'll have, again, hey times Yud, which will be another 50, which will be 100. And then you'll have hey times Vav, which is going to be 30, 
and then you'll have again, you have Yud and Hey Vav, then you'll have Vav Hey, right? So you'll have again Vav times Hey 30. And I just made up which word? Selah. Selah, you see? Right? Selah. Selah is 60, 30, and 70. Because Selah is always associated with Yudke Vavke. In fact, the Kabbalists do the same thing with Tzur and Alekim, known as Alekim, Imhahayin, with the Hayes, which is a whole Kabbalistic way of numerology. It's a little bit complex. But on every level, Tzur is associated with Alekim, and Selah is associated with Yudke Vavke. And as a result of that, when the person is in a state of Alekim, or strike the rock. When the person is in a state of selah, you can't strike it. There's still a stick, but you have to speak to the rock. I always have to be able to be safe and know that discipline sometimes means I have to tell myself this is the right thing to do. Whether you feel it or you don't feel it, whether you understand it or you don't understand it. If not, you will never grow. If you're only limited by persuasion, you become a slave in a different way. Sometimes you have to be free to tell yourself, forcing myself is not the end of the world. It's fine. This is a real value. And right now, I am a horse at a symphony. I can't hear the music. You know what I need? I need a whip. Hopefully, I have that whip within my brain to be able to whip myself. But there's nothing you could sustain in life if once in a while you don't have a stick. Because there's no mood that is always going to be sustainable. Everyone, every person I know, goes on a diet. The difference is some of us go on it once a week, because we broke it in between. And some of us, present company exclude, I'm just talking about myself. And some of us only do it once. Why? The Pasuk says, Miyale bahar Hashem, umiyokum bimkaim katshay. Who will ascend the mountain of Hashem and who will stand in His holy place? Everybody climbs mountains. But once you get to the top of it, maintenance. Maintenance. You can get married, but maintenance. You can buy a beautiful home and renovate it, but maintenance. Do I have to tell Balabustas? Maintenance doesn't seem so complicated, but it's always the hardest thing because there's no adrenaline flow from the excitement. Going on a diet is great, but maintenance, although Eberstein said, through Bar Mitzvahs and Chasinahs, Shevebrachas and Embris and Pidyin Aben and Shabbos tables, Kiddushim and all of the other healthy outlets of ultra-Orthodox Jews, which God has given them in abundance. Maintenance is very difficult. So God says, take the stick. But the M.O. is not the stick. you got to believe in the water inside of these people. And then speak to their water. Don't force them. Moshe, in many ways, was the greatest leader of the Jewish people who ever lived. Not only in many ways, in all ways. In the tefillah of Geshem, in the prayers for rain, on when do we pray for rain? We pray for rain on Shemini uh, Atzeret. We speak about the great virtues of our patriarchs in association with water. And we mention one more thing. When your nation was thirsty for water, 
Al Haselahoch Vayetsumoyim. Moshe struck the rock and water came out. And I ask you, look at the next words. Betzitkoy, in his righteousness, choin chashras mayim, grace us with water. Really? You just told him he's not going into the Holy Land. So many people say it's talking about the first story, not the second story. They're wrong. How do I know? It says, Allah selahach vayetzumoyim. Not Allah surach vayetzumoyim. He struck the selah. Not only that, there's a very famous uh, Hasidic melody on those words. It's one of the liveliest melodies, which was really a tragedy. You know the song? Very lebedicus song. It's a simchasteridicus song. What's the, what are you singing? The truth is, now we can understand that this demonstrated something very powerful and special about Moshe Rabbeinu. He was not ready at this point to delegitimize the people that he shepherded for 40 years. The Medrash Tanchuma says on this verse that God told Moshe Rabbeinu, I'll tell you a story. There was a shepherd who was sent to the fields with 600,000 flock. And he came back to the palace and there was not one sheep left. And they asked the shepherd, where are all your sheep? And he says, oh, they all died. And God says to Moshe, what do you think about such a shepherd? He says, it's, it's inappropriate. So Hashem says, it's a passage, it doesn't make sense that your people remain in the desert and the shepherd alone walks into the promised land. You stay with your flock, and one day you'll all come back together. How does the Medrash make up this, invent this story? The Chumash says, it's a different story. He struck the rock. What did the Medrash say? No, a shepherd. Where did the Medrash get this from? The Medrash is always reading into the, to the nuances, to the subtle um, subplots of every story. Why did Moshe strike the rock? Because he is the one who led these people from Egypt into freedom. He is the one who took them from slavery into redemption. This was the communication level that he communicated with them in order so they should be able to have children and create a new generation with whom you can speak to. And Moshe remained eternally connected to his people, to the people he led for 40 years where the M.O. was a very different M.O. because they came fresh from Egypt. And he wouldn't let go of that, including, but not only, not to delegitimize the value of the spiritual heights that the first generations have reached through the metaphysical whip, through Shema Lekim. Moshe spoke to the rock. In many ways, this wasn't a punishment as much as it was a consequence. God told Moshe, you belong to your people. You don't belong to this generation. That generation belonged to you. You belong to them. Moshe described in Parshas Baloischi, he said, Am I their mother? That you tell me, carry them like a mother carries an infant? In other words, that was his understanding of Jewish leadership. You are their mother. You belong to that generation. That generation belongs to you. 
a new generation has a different language. And that different language must be communicated through different people. It has advantages and it has disadvantages. In many ways brings out the infinite love and dedication that Moshe had to this generation to the point that at the end of 40 years he would not change that because this was the language that he spoke to his generation not to demonstrate or prove that this was an inferior language and now we're reaching a superior language. What does this mean when we translate this into our own journey of history? There is a big debate that is going on as I speak. I don't mean only this Tuesday morning. I mean over recent years, especially recent months. What's the future of Jewish education? What's, what should be the hashkafa that pervades Jewish homes, Jewish schools, high schools, elementary schools, Talmud Torahs, Chadorim, Beis Yaakov's, girls' schools, boys' schools, for younger, for older. What's the, what are the key features that are going to allow parents and teachers, Rebbe's and Moros, Mechanchem and Mechanchois, Rosh Hashivas and Mashgichim, to communicate life values Yiddishkeit to a new generation? Nobody in their sane mind believes that education could come without discipline, as I explained before at length. But the question is, what is its ultimate goal? And I would say today I see that there are two views. Maybe I should not call them two views, because maybe people just develop views based on the tools that they have. They're not so much views as much as they are surviving tools. But one always talks about vihikisa batsur. We have a bunch of rocks. Strike them. Strike them. And strike them hard. This is the Yiddishkeit that sees coercion, fear, dread as the ultimate power of influence. There was a graduation two days ago of a Jewish school, a kindergarten. And a mother came to the graduation. She didn't know that you're not allowed to have a certain color shoes. She came with a certain color shoes. She, the mother. And at the end of the graduation, the principal came over to her, so the mother thought the principal is coming over to say, Mazel Tov. Her girl graduates, an exceptional girl, really wonderful girl, and the girl did amazingly well there, and she was certain that the principal is coming over to give her mazel tov. What happened was the principal came over and started to holler at this woman in front of her daughter, in front of all the girls, and in front of all the mothers who came for the graduation, in public humiliating her how how she is destroying Yiddishkeit, and right then she expelled this girl from the school. She could never come back to the school again. Screaming in public. 
so uh, I asked a question. I said an interesting thing. I know that the Gemara says in Baba Metziah that Tamar was ready to go be burnt alive not to embarrass Yehuda in public. I, she would be burnt alive with twins inside her womb. Better to throw yourself into a blazing flame than to embarrass somebody. And who are you embarrassing? You're embarrassing somebody who sentenced you to death. And you're embarrassing somebody who you know what he did three months ago. She didn't. She let him say the truth. And he did. I learned Shulchan Aruch. I learned a little Gemara. I learned a little Hashkafa. Nowhere does it say in all of Judaism that this color shoe is forbidden. But let's say it's a tradition, it's a custom. Humiliating somebody in public, that's completely fine. God is happy with that. But the shoe, God despises. So somebody else called me who, was, who knew the story and said, how do you explain this? Can you justify this principle? I said, I'm not here to justify anybody, but I'll explain to you a little bit the psychology. How do I know? Because I often hear it from such people when I ask them. Psychology is how you're going to influence a woman or a girl not to dress in a way that your tradition doesn't allow. How? You're going to explain it to her. First of all, you're not sure she's going to be convinced. Second of all, you don't have what to explain because you yourself don't know why. So what's the only thing you can do is? A whip! If you don't do this, well, you'll get embarrassed in public. You'll be thrown out forever. So we keep everybody in shape. And that becomes the M.O. of Yiddishkeit. That's the way how you keep a system going. It's called fear, terror, and dread. And there's a model for that. It's called, this is my great Limutzchus. When you come out of Egypt, it's called the Kisa Batsur. It's a model of it. But anybody who understands anything about today's generation, before, right before Mashiach comes and we're about to go back to Eretz Yisrael, at the end of a long gullus in a long midbar that lasted not 40 years but close to 2,000 years, understands discipline is an essential component of Yiddishkeit. It's an essential component of a healthy home and a healthy school. People need discipline. Children and adults, and even even all of us sitting in this room, need discipline. Why? Because we have animals inside of us. That's a fact. Again, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about those of us sitting here who have little or big animals inside. And if you have a bigger animal, again, your shamnu can be interpreted as a caress. Sometimes you need a bat. But what is the MO of Yiddishkeit? What's the goal? What's the objective? So Hashem tells Moshe, You're not going to be able to take them into Eretz Yisrael, into a land flowing with milk and honey, into an era of freedom, if all you have to sell is coercion, fear, and force. And the moment your whip is not effective anymore, you will lose an enormous amount of people who have their own water. To be sure, 
There are people for whom it works. Why? The less water you have inside, the more you like to get commandments from other people. But those who are deeper people, in other words, they have a lot of water, they're looking to find their own water. And if you can't teach them how to find their own divine water by communicating to the rock, by understanding that even if it's rocky outside, inside it's full of mayim, it's full of life and vibrancy and inspiration. Don't look at the outer terrain. Even when it's rocky outside, you have to be able to penetrate, to excavate when no son may move. Then you can take a generation into Israel. Again, this does not mean what people like to interpret when they hear this message. Oh, there's no discipline, no gvura, everything is permissible, there's no God, there's no Yerushalayim. Exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. Discipline is a means to help every person find their water, find their love, find their inspiration. You must know a language of a generation. When a leader, when a teacher, when a parent does not have their finger on the pulse of a generation, they're incapable of leading them. They're incapable of guiding them. They're incapable of inspiring them. They may have extraordinary intentions, but they're treating the person as a rock inside and outside. And they're never allowing them to find their own water, which will frustrate them on end and make them feel completely alienated. There's nothing here for my soul. There's no music here. There's no depth. There's no meaning. There's no love. There's no truth. There's no integrity. There's no logic. All there is is making sure that the status quo is maintained so that people can feel secure in their positions and look in the mirror and say, we're good, we're doing God's work. This is not an insult, Khalila, for all generations past and how they operated. Just like this story is not an insult, Lahavdil, I don't know if I should say Lahavdil against Moshe Rabbeinu. But it's always an appreciation and a sensitivity of who you are and who you're speaking to. So now, we come full circle. Moshe's generation was familiar with the language of force, of harshness. For them, when Moshe hits the rock, using force to extract the water, he was speaking the language that was understood by his generation. It resonated with them. Slaves understand that a stick is used for striking. In fact, that's how... Slave masters compel obedience and submission. Remember the first scene of Moshe Rabbeinu's life. It goes back all the way to the beginning. Moshe grows up in the beginning of Parsha Shmois. He grows up in the palace of Egypt. He comes out to his brothers and what does he see? He sees an Egyptian striking, beating a Jew. What does Moshe do? He strikes the Egyptian. He strikes him. The Medrash has three opinions how he struck him. Did he do it with his fist? 
Did he do it with a shovel? Did he do it with Shem HaMafayrish? And the next day, again, what does he see? He sees two Jews fighting with each other. Why do you hit your friend? Later, when they would leave Egypt, they're standing at the feet of Harsinai. What does the Gemara say in Mesechel Shabbos Dav Peches? They stood under the mountain, Melamed, Shakofa Aleim Har Kigigis. The master of the world placed the mountain over their head like an overturned vat, like a gigis. The language of Kofa, the language of Kfiya, the language of compelling somebody resonated with them. But now, 40 years later, you have a new generation. They grew up in a desert protected by Hashem who provided them with all their needs. They were softer in some ways, weaker, more sensitive. They grew up in freedom. They had all of life's gifts given to them on a golden platter. They ate food from heaven. They were protected by clouds of glory. They understood a different language. When it comes to a generation that's raised in freedom, they have to be educated, informed, instructed, taught, empowered, inspired, invigorated. If not, they will not absorb the message. Maybe short term you will be successful, but not long term. They will never learn to take responsibility for their life and rise up to their true potential. Slaves can understand one language. Free people have to hear a different language. They respond not to power. They respond not so much to authority, but much more to persuasion, to somebody who speaks to their inner core, their inner heart, their inner soul, their inner mind. They need to be spoken to. And when they're coerced as an end in and of itself, when coercion becomes the beginning, the middle, and the end of Yiddishkeit, they resent it. Internally, they become alienated. Some of them will show it, and some of them will repress it. But internally, they're not there. They don't care for it. How many people do we have in our generation externally? They go with the flow. They're in the system, as we like to call it. Externally. But internally, there's absolutely no appreciation because nobody ever spoke to them. Spoke to their heart, spoke to their mind, spoke to their intelligence, spoke to their soul, spoke to their depth, spoke to their love, spoke to their truth, spoke to their individuality, spoke to their personality. The slave may not know another life, the free person does know a different life. And that was the difference between Hashem's commandment 40 years ago, strike the rock, and His commandment now, speak to the rock. This was not a small distinction, the difference was of essence. And the symbolism in each one was delicately tailored to the mentality of the different generations. You strike a slave. You speak to a free person. When Moshe Rabbeinu stood here, Hashem told him to take the staff. As I told you, we always need a stick. We always need discipline. We always need a little bit of guru, a lot of guru. It depends on my Yetzirah, depends on my animal, depends on my resistance. But Moshe was not ready to perceive the transformation that has taken place in the new generation of Jews, the young Jews who were not in Egypt, or they were babies when they were in Egypt, and now they have come of age. Where do you see it in Moshe's words? Shimunah Moirim. 
listen to me, rebels. He identifies them as rebels. Rebels you need to strike. Rebels you need to use a certain language because they're rebels. You need to whip them into shape physically or much more importantly, conceptually. And you know, this explains why you'll see in the Tanakh, Moshe blames the Jewish people for what happened. In Parshas Vaschanan, Moshe is going to say, Hashem became upset with me because of you. In Tehillim, David HaMelech says, Kapitel Kufvav, Psalms 106. Moshe suffered because of them. What do you mean? What does it do with them? It has to do with Moshe Rabbeinu. The answer, of course, is this was all a result because of Moshe's connection to his generation. Remember, Moshe is the one who told Hashem when he was not ready to forgive them for the sin of the golden calf. Blot me out of your Sefer Torah. There's no me without them. Moshe would not allow himself to be separated from his beloved generation, the great generation of Jews who became God's people. The first generation who saw Hashem face to face and received the Torah. Moshe, you could never, you could never separate Moshe from that people. And when Hashem said... I'll start over with you. He said, If you forgive them, good. If you don't forgive them, Erase me from the Sefer Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu remains completely connected to the first generation of Jews. He's unwilling to perceive that there is a new transformation, a transformation and a new language needed. He's unwilling. Maybe it's not in his capacity. Do to him being the Raya Mehemna, as the Zohar says, the Raya Nemon, the faithful shepherd of his people. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu has to strike the rock twice. Why twice? Why twice? Ah, because by definition, when you're compelling somebody to do something, you have to do it twice. You can't do it once. When you attempt to change things through pressure rather than through persuasion, you have to do it more than once, <laughs> right? When you want to force or scream at your children to do something, screaming once doesn't help. You got to scream once and you got to scream again. And you got to scream a third time. If you could only do it twice, it's already magical. It never happens once because I'm not doing it from within. I'm doing it from without. Now that may be very important. When I'm a child and there's no other option, your child is going to run into the street, when your child is playing with a knife, or your child is eating the 10th lollipop, and you won't be able to fall asleep, and it's going to be hyper from sugar, you got to take it away. And sometimes you have to say it once, and sometimes twice, and sometimes three times. But Moshe is using the language of the stick, and therefore he has to strike it twice. And that's the meaning of Hashem saying, You didn't sanctify me before the eyes of the people. Meaning you maintained a lower relationship between me and the people. You didn't believe me that now is a time to speak. You didn't trust me that now is the time to transform the method of leadership. And as a result of that, you didn't sanctify me in the eyes of the Jewish people. You didn't believe 
in the depth of the relationship, in how powerful the Kedusha of the Jewish people is, in how close they are with God, in how intimate they are with God. In fact, I believe Yitzhak and Kedusha Slevi has an incredible interpretation reconciling the explanation of Rashi and the explanation of the, of the Rambam that they really want explanation because when you're angry at them, you lower their level, then you have to force the rock to give out water. The Badichavist says, an amazing insight, that the world was created for Torah, and the world was created for the Jewish people who introduced Torah into the world. So the world wants to be of assistance. It wants to conform its reality to what the Jewish people need. But when you degrade, so you speak to the rock and it gives water, but when you degrade the Jewish people, when you see, when you call them rebels, then the rock says, I'm not giving water to these rebels, and you have to strike the rock. A new generation needs a new language, and now you'll see something fascinating. Go to the Sefer Yehoshua, the book of Joshua, Perik Chavdalet, Pasuk Chavav, chapter 24, verse 26. At the end of the Sefer Yeshua, we learned that at the end of his life, Yeshua, who took the Jewish people into the land of Israel, established a large stone as a monument. And what does he say? The Pasuk says, Vayikach Evan G'doyla, Vayikimeh Hashem, he puts up a huge stone, Vayoymer Yeshua al Kalam, Hinei Ha'even Hazois Tiyeh Vanu La'eida, Ki Hishamo Es Kol Imre Adinoi Hashem Dibirimonu, Vahoysa Bachem La'eida Pentechach Hashem Be'eloyhech. Yeshua says that the rock has heard, heard all of the words of God which he has spoken to us. Here you have it. Yeshua understood that one can also speak to a stone and it will listen. He understood that the primary method of communication with the new generation is one of conversation rather than coercion. One of inspiration rather than force. One of inner empowerment, persuasion, and invigoration, rather than external, externally compelling the person to follow suit. And in fact, there's a fascinating Gemara in Mesechah Sanhedrin of Chavdalot Amar Aleph, Amar said, the Pasuk speaks in Scharia, the prophet's higher chapter 11 says, The Navi Schayer says, I'm going to take two sticks. One I'm going to call noyam, pleasantness, sweetness. The other one I'm going to call choivlem, violence. Asks the Gemara, what does this mean? And for the Gemara, Makal Noyam Elo Talmidi Chachamim Shebeir Tzitzvah Shema Nimin Zelazab Halacha Choivlim Elo Talmidi Chachamim Shebbovel Shema Chabim Zelazab Halacha. Fascinating. The stick that's called sweetness refers to the sages of Eretz Yisrael, the Holy Land, who discuss Halacha sweetly with each other. Violence, the stick of violence, refers to the sages of Babylonia, presently Iraq. They're violent against one against the other in the discussion of halacha. What does this mean? What does this mean? What in Babylonia they had sticks and they hurt each other when they were learning? Of course not. Of course there are two ways of learning Torah. There's makal noyam and there's makal choivlam. There's the stick of sweetness. 
and the stick of aggression. In exile and bovel, in a mindset of slavery, sometimes the path is makal chayvlam, coercion. I have to coerce myself. But in the mindset of Eretz Yisrael, a freedom of redemption, a new approach has to be embraced. When the Jews were fresh out of exile, out of the Mitzrayim, of the bubble of the time, one approach worked. For a new generation about to enter into Eretz Yisrael, the approach had to change from Makal Choivlin to Makal Noyam, from a stick of aggression to a stick of pleasantness. We live in a generation that's soon going to go in to the Geula with Mashiach Tzidkeinu, back to Eretz Yisrael. Do we all need a stick to discipline ourselves? Do we have a Yitzhahara and an animal soul that we sometimes have to whip into shape? Of course. But what is the primary goal and mission statement of Yiddishkeit today? Speak to your children, speak to your girls, speak to your boys, speak to your Bachrim, speak to your Talmidai, speak to your students, your pupils, your disciples, your grandchildren, your siblings, your colleagues. Speak, inspire, believe in their water, believe in their inspiration, believe in the Be'er Mayim Chaim, the living, divine wellsprings of water that flow in their beautiful souls and beautiful hearts. Speak to the Selah. And when you speak to it, you will see the infinite flow of vibrancy and inspiration that can flow from each of their souls. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.